Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about diabetic ketoacidosis. And if you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com/dka or in the endocrinology section of the Zero to Finals pediatrics book. So let's get straight into it. Diabetic ketoacidosis is a life-threatening medical emergency. And it's the most common way that children with a new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes will present. Firstly, we need to talk about the process of ketogenesis, or the creation of ketones. Ketogenesis normally occurs when there's an insufficient supply of glucose, and the glycogen stores in the muscles and the liver are exhausted. And this may happen after a prolonged period of fasting, or with very low carbohydrate diets the liver takes fatty acids and converts them into ketones. And ketones are soluble fatty acids that can be used as fuel. Ketones can cross the blood-brain barrier and be used by the brain as fuel. And producing ketones is normal and not harmful in otherwise healthy patients under fasting conditions or on a very low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. Ketone levels can be measured in the urine using a urine dipstick and also in the blood using a ketone meter. And people in ketosis have a characteristic acetone smell to their breath. Ketone acids, or ketones, are buffered in normal patients, so the blood does not become acidic. When underlying pathology, such as type 1 diabetes, causes extreme hyperglycemic ketosis, this results in a metabolic acidosis that is life-threatening. This is called diabetic ketoacidosis. Let's talk more about the pathophysiology of this diabetic ketoacidosis. DKA occurs in type 1 diabetics when the person is not producing their own insulin because of the type 1 diabetes and they're not injecting enough insulin in order to compensate for this. It occurs when the body does not have enough insulin to use to be able to process glucose properly. The main problems are ketoacidosis, dehydration, and potassium imbalance. Firstly, talking about ketoacidosis, without insulin, the cells of the body are unable to recognize glucose. So despite a high glucose level, the cells think that they're starving and they have no energy source. When the cells of the body think they're starving and they have no fuel, they start to initiate the process of ketogenesis so that they can have a usable fuel and they start producing ketone acids or ketones. Over time, the glucose and ketone levels get higher and higher. Initially, the kidneys are able to produce bicarbonate to buffer the ketone acids in the blood and maintain a normal pH. However, over time, the ketone acids use up the bicarbonate and the blood starts to become acidic. And this is called ketoacidosis. Next, let's talk about the dehydration component of ketoacidosis. Hyperglycemia, or the high blood sugar level, overwhelms the kidneys and the glucose starts to be filtered into the urine. The glucose in the urine draws water out with it, and this process is called osmotic diuresis. And this causes the patient to urinate a lot, which we call polyuria. This results in severe dehydration, The dehydration stimulates the thirst center in the brain of the patient and tells the patient to drink lots of water. And this leads to excessive thirst, which we call polydipsia. 
So two key features of ketoacidosis are polyuria and polydipsia. Next, let's talk about the potassium imbalance that occurs with diabetic ketoacidosis. Insulin normally drives potassium into the cells. Without insulin, potassium is not added to or stored in the cells. Therefore, the serum potassium can be high or normal in diabetic ketoacidosis as the kidneys continue to balance the blood potassium with the potassium excreted in the urine. However, the total body potassium is low because no potassium is stored in the cells. When treatment with insulin starts, patients can develop severe hypokalemia or low potassium level very quickly and this can lead to fatal arrhythmias as the potassium starts to be drawn out of the blood and into cells to replace the missing potassium that are in the cells. The most dangerous aspects of diabetic ketoacidosis are the dehydration, the potassium imbalance and the acidosis and these are what will kill the patient. Therefore, when we treat diabetic ketoacidosis, the priority is fluid resuscitation, which will be useful to correct the dehydration, to correct the electrolyte imbalance and the acidosis. And this is followed by an insulin infusion to allow the cells to start taking up and using glucose again and stop producing ketones. We need to talk about cerebral edema, which is particularly important with children who have DKA. Children with DKA are at high risk of developing cerebral edema. The dehydration and the high blood sugar concentration cause water to move from the intracellular space in the brain to the extracellular space. Basically, the water moves out of the brain cells into the extracellular space. This causes the brain cells to shrink and become dehydrated. And when we rapidly correct dehydration and hyperglycemia with fluids and insulin, this causes a rapid shift in water from the extracellular space to the intracellular space inside the brain cells. And this causes the brain to swell and become edematous, which can lead to brain cell destruction and death. Neurological observations, for example with the Glasgow Coma Scale or GCS, should be monitored very closely, for example hourly, in order to look for signs of cerebral edema when you're treating a child with DKA. Be concerned when patients being treated for DKA develop headaches, altered behavior, bradycardia or a slow heart rate, or changes in consciousness, because this may indicate cerebral edema. Management options for cerebral edema are to slow the IV fluids, IV mannitol, and IV hypertonic saline. However, these should all be guided by a very experienced paediatrician. Let's talk about the presentation of DKA. The patients will present with symptoms of the underlying hyperglycemia, dehydration and acidosis. And these are polyuria, polydipsia or excessive thirst, nausea and vomiting, weight loss, an acetone smell to their breath, dehydration and subsequent hypotension, altered consciousness, and they may have symptoms of an underlying trigger, for example, sepsis. To establish a diagnosis of DKA, always check your local DKA diagnostic criteria in your hospital. However, in order to diagnose DKA, you require hyperglycemia, which is typically a blood sugar level above 11 millimoles per liter, ketosis, which is a blood ketone level above 3 millimoles per liter, and acidosis which would be a pH below 7.3.
Let's talk about the principles of managing DKA in children. Always follow the local treatment protocols and involve a senior paediatrician. The two pillars of correcting DKA are to correct the dehydration and to give a fixed rate insulin infusion. With regard to correcting the dehydration, this should be done evenly over 48 hours. IV fluids are used to correct the dehydration and dilute the hyperglycemia and the ketones. Correcting it any faster than 48 hours increases the risk of cerebral edema. With regard to giving a fixed rate insulin infusion, this allows the cells to start using the glucose again, and this in turn switches off the production of ketones. There's a few other important principles to management. You need to avoid fluid boluses in order to minimize the risk of cerebral edema unless they're required for resuscitation. Treat underlying triggers, for example, antibiotics for septic patients. Prevent hypoglycemia with an IV dextrose infusion once the insulin falls below 14 millimoles per liter. Add potassium to IV fluids and monitor the serum potassium closely. Monitor for signs of cerebral edema and monitor the glucose, ketones, and pH to assess the progress of treatment and to determine when to switch to a normal subcutaneous insulin regime and stop the DKA protocol. So thanks for listening to this episode on diabetic ketoacidosis in children. A big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing this podcast. If you found the podcast helpful and you want written notes on this topic and all the other topics, head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of the Zero to Finals Pediatrics book. You can also find full audiobook versions of the Zero to Finals books available on Audible. And you can find notes, videos, illustrations and questions completely free on the Zero to Finals website at zerotofinals.com. And I hope you tune in for the next episode where we'll be talking about adrenal insufficiency in children.